Let's open our Bibles to um, the book of Isaiah, chapter 21. What can I say? This is not a happy, clappy Bible study. It's judgment, judgment, and more judgment. All the above. Chapters 21 is a judgment of Babylon, Edom, and Arabia. Chapter 22, the whole chapter is about the judgments against Jerusalem. Chapter 23 is a judgment of Tyre. And so we're in that portion of God's Word from chapter 13 to tonight we'll be finishing um, a section that just deals with this subject. It's called the Judgment of the Nations. It is extremely detailed. You can't get around prophecy if you teach through the Bible. Everything we're going to read tonight, this prophecy in uh, chapter 21 was given 200 years before it actually happened. And every one of these is a foretelling of judgments that would happen exactly as Isaiah would lay it out. So I scratch my head and I I wonder how people get around talking about Bible prophecy when you can't do, especially a book like Isaiah or any of them. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they're prophets. And so what do they do? They prophesy. And what this is going to set the stage for, I'll begin and end with this thought, because we'll be there on Sunday. When we finish chapters 13 through 23, dealing with these prophecies that were fulfilled exactly as recorded here, it will conclude a section, but it begins chapter 24, which the whole chapter has to do with a yet future judgment that we call the Great Tribulation. And it's interesting to me how the Holy Spirit would lay this down. Because he lays it down in such a way where we can say, okay, we know our history. We know that this was written before the events happened. Therefore, it carries a lot of credibility when we look at something yet future. So when you go from chapter 23, which is going to deal with a very detailed fall of the nation of Tyre by two separate attacks one by Babylon and one by Alexander the Great, both happened, and with great detail is described in history. There's a break, and all of a sudden we're jumping now to the last days where God once again will bring worldwide judgment in chapter 24. So let's dive in tonight as we look at chapter 21. This is a prophecy against Babylon, and we find that right away in the first couple of verses Verse 1 here identifies uh, the burden against the wilderness of the sea as whirlwind in the south passed through, so it comes from a desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. Identified, here is Babylon. It was in the wilderness. Uh, It had the Euphrates River going through it. Uh, That's what provided its water source. But basically, um, that's where it was located. We know where the ancient ruins of Babylon are. Verse 2 identifies who it is that's going to be God's instrument to bring forth this judgment. So we read in verse 2, a distressing a vision is declared to me that the treacherous dealer deals treacherously and the plunders plunder. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media, all its settings I've made to see. So what we have, and 
history records for us um, the fall by the Medes and the Persians. And um, we'll get into um, that when we get down to verse 5 in just a second. But let's just talk a little bit about the very fact that God has to bring judgment at all. Um, Babylon was the root of all idolatry. We have, when they were defeated, uh, you can actually follow the fall from Jerusalem where the Babylonians uh, fled to when they were conquered. It says where Satan's seat was, but went to Pergamos, from Pergamos on into Rome. That's where the priests from Babylon ended up. But verses 3 and 4, there's a therefore. And here, we're talking about a heavy subject of God having to bring judgment. But the guy who's got to give the message is Isaiah. And he is sort of giving us in 3 and 4 the Father's heart in having to bring discipline. So, therefore, my loins, or my innermost being, where my heart, where my feelings are, are filled with pain. Pain is taken hold of me like the pains of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered, and uh, uh, fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. So here, you know, we, we know the Bible says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Somebody tell me. All should come to what? Repentance. He's not willing. Jesus said, unless we do repent, you know, you will perish. And so he does not delight. We're told clearly he does not delight in the judgment of the unrighteous. But he will bring judgment if, if a person doesn't repent. He was especially hard on, on the scribes and the Pharisees because of their self-righteousness. And um, that's one thing the Lord could not handle. Read Matthew 23. He leaves no, no verb unturned in describing his disdain for their hypocrisy. Brood of vipers, den of thieves. Who's, who can spare you from the depths of hell? And um, especially because they would, it didn't bother them at all of, of going after the widow's wealth when she had none. And here what we read in verse 3 and 4 is basically the Lord saying, yes, I'm going to judge, but I don't take any pleasure in it. And man chooses. We have a free will. So what happened um, in this judgment with the Medes and the Persians, let's go to Daniel chapter and a quick reveal, I'll tell you basically how it, how it came tumbling down. Give you a minute to get to Daniel, chapter 5. There's 25 years between chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 4 is the personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon. He was the instrument God used to eventually destroy Jerusalem. He brought Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the first siege. They were the cream of the crop. He raised them up. They became sort of his cabinet, so to speak. They were the best of the best. And Daniel rose to the very top. 
And he didn't like the interpretation of Daniel's dream of a nation that would come after him. In this case, we're told in Isaiah, it's the Medes and the Persians. 200 years before what I'm about to read right now. So 200 years um, before this event happened, Isaiah is already prophesying about it, and he says, I feel terrible about it. I feel like a woman who's having labor pains. So he's humbled. All of chapter 4 is nothing more than I, Nebuchadnezzar, the the greatest king who ever lived, (laughs) to all peoples and languages who dwell on the earth. This was a memo, and this memo went worldwide. And he tells how the Lord dealt with him for seven years, seven seasons. Went crazy because he was fighting against God's plan. That can be tough sometimes, you know, when the Lord is dealing with you, calling you, and you know he's after you if you're not saved. Like Paul. Paul, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to kick against the goads. You ever, you ever kick a cactus before? And uh, actually, we had a, um, um, a gal on, on that walked into, by mistake, she sat down next to a cactus. And these cactus on the trail that I like to hike at Lost Dutchman State Heart, actually, it's, all you have to do is touch them, and they're in there. And... Um, it's, it's hard to do. And if you don't have a tweezers on you, you're, you're in a lot of pain because it takes a long time to pull those babies out. So don't, don't go kicking against the cactus because it hurts. The last verse I want to read is verse 37. When he learned his lesson, when all is said and done, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are true and his ways just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now, fast forward 25 years, because that's the length of time between chapter 4 and 5, and we have Belshazzar, the king. Actually, this would be his grandson. Uh, He made a a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of tens of, of the thousands. And he brought out, almost in a mocking way, he mocked God by bringing out some of the temple treasures the golden vessels. And um, in the middle of all of this, of course, we have the famous hand appearing out of nowhere and uh, this phrase being given that nobody could interpret except for Daniel. And when Daniel gives the interpretation, let's go to verse 25, uh, many, many, tekel, eupharsin, means... Uh, as Daniel interprets the dream to him, this is the interpretation of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom, and it's over, and finished it. Uh, Tekel, tekel, however you want to say it, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Well, this is exactly what what, uh, Isaiah said in chapter 21, 200 years he called the nation that would defeat the Babylonians who at this time weren't even on the radar. They were a farm town, nothing going on. And um, Daniel was promoted, but verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius Samid received the kingdom, being 62 years old. Let's go back to Isaiah. And so we find in verse 2, who's going to plunder the Medes? 
and the Persians. This is how it happened. There was a general on the Medes side, let me find his name in my notes here, Gorbrias, G-O-B-Y-R-A-S. He diverted the Euphrates River. They couldn't go over their 300-foot walls and their 450-foot towers, but they made a channel and diverted the Euphrates River so that the Medes actually just took it, with, we'd say today, without firing a shot. They simply walked underneath where the, when the water was down far enough, and they took the city. And it was done in one night. The Lord had already told Daniel, you're going to be replaced by the Medes and the Persians. He fought it. He didn't like it. God humbled him. He gives his personal testimony. The sad thing about this is, is his grandson didn't learn the lesson. And Daniel told him so. And he said, you should, know, you, you should have known better because of your, your father. Basically, they don't have a word in the Hebrew for grandfather, so the same word there. You should have learned from him, but you're nothing like him. So let's take it a step farther. Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink, arise, you princes. Anoint the shield. And so in verse 5, we have them doing what I just read in Daniel 5. They were having this big party, mocking God, by using the um, vessels from the temple. Uh, For thus says the Lord to me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, and a chariot of camels. And he listened diligently with great care. So he's basically poetically saying, Go stand up on, on your guard towers. Here they come. They're coming. And um, look at the chariots. You guys are coming down. And that's exactly what happened. Now, then he cried, A lion, my lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have set at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And, of course, we can't read it, those words saying it that way without, of course, thinking. In Revelation 14, one of the angels that came says exactly the same thing. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Word for word, identical. So we have Babylon past. We will have um, Babylon yet future, Revelation uh, chapter 18. All right. So let's turn at this point with those verses. I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 51. Jeremiah 51. These are called, again, the major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, Isaiah, only because um, they're larger, they have more chapters than the minor prophets. But that's the only reason... They're called the major prophets. Chapter 51, uh, let's go to verse, oh, let's go back to verse 28, and we'll read verse 233. Prepare against her the nations with the king of the Medes, its governors and its rulers, and all the land of his dominion, and the land will tremble and sorrow, for every purpose of the Lord will be performed against Babylon, to make the land uh, of Babylon a desolation without inhabitants. The mighty men of Babylon have ceased fighting. 
they have remained in their stronghold. Their might has failed. They became like women. They have burned her dwelling place. The bars on her gates are broken. One runner will run to meet another and one messenger to another to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken on all sides. The passages are blocked. The reeds they have burned with fire and the men of war terrified. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the daughters of Babylon like a threshing floor when it's time to thresh her yet a little while in the time of her harvest will come. And so we have a reference to it here, what took place only from Jeremiah's perspective. All right, back to Isaiah. We'll finish it off in verse 10. We have, O my threshing and the grain of my floors, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of God of Israel, I have declared it to you. Okay, so here it is, 200 years. He says, this is how it's coming down. It's going to be the Medes and the Persians. And you go 200 years in the future to Daniel 5, and that's exactly what had happened. Jeremiah reaffirms it. Of these, from 13 to 23, we have the judgment of 11 nations. We only have two verses here with the prophecy against Duma or Edom. And that would be verses 11 and 12. Let's read those. The burden against Duma. Uh, he calls me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Return, come back. Interesting prophecy. And actually a little bit of play on some words here. Who is Dura, and it's sort of a a play on words to bring out, I think, a deeper meaning. If you drop the E of Durham, uh, basically you have the Edom, which means silence. Our word for for it would be somewhat like we would say, that's dumb. And that's basically what's being said here. It's, It's probably our closest meaning. And then seer, he calls me out of seer. Seer means roughly uh, rough or hairy. Esau was the first seer man. He was hairy, and uh, he dwelt in Mount Seir, according to Genesis 36. Seir also means storms. It was a land swept with storms. Silence and storm. What a play on words, and what a message. Edom is obviously the country involved. Out of the land of silence and storms comes this country, which is twice repeated, watchmen, what of the night? In other words, how much of the night is gone? How long it will be before God's glory will be revealed when the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing on his wings? A lot of what the prophets intertwine here, we don't see it clearly sometimes, is um, characters that are forerunners of like the Antichrist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably the best example I could give you is Antioch Epiphanes, who is a perfect type of the Antichrist, who actually would be about 164 B.C. when um, he went into the Holy of Holies 
and actually committed an abomination of desolation. And it was done by Antioch Epiphanes. But it wasn't really what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24 when you see the abomination of desolations. It's a stereotype. And we see it replayed in figure form. And we're going to see that. We see that a little bit uh, here uh, with, with um, let me explain the evening and the morning thing. We see both morning and night are coming. What will be glory for some will be doom for others. What will be light for God's people will be night for Edomites, the men of flesh who have rejected God. And basically, when you, when you talk of uh, Esau, that's what he was. He, uh, he, he sold his birthright. He didn't care for the things of God for you know, bowl, lentil, soup. He just cashed in. I don't care. And it just wasn't, uh, he, just, he just didn't have that heart. So it's sort of, a, if you want a picture, there's our, there are those of us who are saying, Lord, the last thing the Bible says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Uh, every day I get up, my body's a little bit older, a little, get, a little bit more to get it going. And I say, well, today's a nice day to go home. <laughs> Perhaps today. And I think the older you get, of course, the wiser you get. You see the shortness of it all. And you, you, you look back and you say, you know, all that really matters is what's been done in the Lord. And everything else is either going to burn and you can't take it with you. And that just fits in with Colossians 3, verse 1. It says, if you're born again, then seek those things which are above where Christ is. Good place for an amen. Amen. That's why we have Bible studies because it's sort of, I, 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 I kind of like to call it getting back to true north. And the Bible does that. The Bible puts everything in perspective. So what we're going to learn tonight is judgment, judgment, judgment. There will be judgment. For the child of God, it's going to be mourning. And um, this is as bad as it's ever going to get, gang. But if you're not saved, this is the best it's going to get. And, there, and, it isn't, and that isn't going to last. So the play on words here with Duma... Those who are dumb are those who are not, you know, seeking the Lord like an Esau. Those who are wise um, will be those who are walking in the light. That's what Jesus said. You're the salt. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine. And go for it. Let it be known. Don't. Paul said, I'm, I'm a fool for Christ. The old saying, everybody, somebody's fool. Everybody heard that one? Well, then you'd be a fool for Christ. That's what Paul said he'd be. And... Uh, so there's only these two verses that deal with Edom, and it's a, a picture of, of course, Esau and his, his mistakes. All right, 13 through 17 is the burden of Arabia. And uh, let's read that, because if we don't see this unfolding in our world today, um, I mean, it's really being played out, even on the news tonight. Uh, the burden against Arabia. So in chapter 21, we have three more nations of the 11 that are in chapters 13 to 23. The burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia, you will lodge. All you traveling companies of uh, Dedanites, O inhabitants of the land of Tima, bring water to him who is thirsty. Uh, with their bread, and meet him who fled. For they fled from the sword, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the 
the stress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail, and the remainder of the numbers of archers, the mighty men and the people of Kedar, will be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. So in these verses here, Arabia seems clear enough but again, this is a word with sort of a double meaning. It can be made to mean evening by changing the, vo- the vowel points. Now, the Hebrew language is a language of consonants with no vowels. Instead of vowels, they have what Jesus referred to as a jot and a tittle. Just little marks will change the whole meaning of a word. And the Lord said, nothing's going to not happen until every jot and every tittle. We'd say, we'd say dot and the I and crossing the T as a jot and a tittle. And in the Hebrew languages, um, they have no vowels. Instead, they have these marks. Scholars have added vowels to the Hebrew words to make them more readable. In this verse, the meaning is quite obvious. It was evening in the history of Arabia. It was later than they thought. Arabia was the land of the Ishmaelites, uh, the Bedouin tribe of the desert, the modern-day Arabs. So when we talk about the Middle East, we've got to distinguish between an Arab and a Muslim. They might be Arab, but that doesn't necessarily make them a Muslim. It's interesting that God speaks of them. Abraham's son Ishmael and Isaac never did get along. And there's a whole, and when you get into Galatians, uh, Paul uses it as an example of Hagar and Ishmael, how they never got along and kicked kick the bondservant out, which would have been Ishmael. And Isaac didn't like it. I mean, Abraham uh, didn't like it. They'd, or Isaac, uh, Abraham didn't. Their descendants don't get along today either. The Arabs and the Jews are still at each other's throat today, and the Arabs are, and the Arabs against the Arabs are at their own throat. And where we're seeing it being manifested today is if I say um, Islam, well, somebody might say, well, which Islam are we talking about here? Are we talking Sunni, or are we talking Shiites, or are we talking ISIS? And you could say that they're all Muslims, but what are they doing? Well, they're fighting one another. I mean, to the death right now. And we talked a little bit about this on, on Sunday. And so here is a prophecy that um, says that they would be warring with each other, and they would eventually also be judged. Chapter 22. This whole chapter deals with um, the judgment of Jerusalem. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and we'll comment on that then. The burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city? Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together, who have fled from afar. Therefore I said, look away from me, 
I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to try to comfort me because of the plunder of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity. But the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the wall and a cry to the mountains. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in the day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pools. He's prophesying about something that Hezekiah is going to do in this verse right here. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect to him who fashioned it long before. What we have in view in these, these verses, first verses here, what siege an enemy is in mind of the prophet. Persia is mentioned by name. But Jerusalem was in ruins while Persia was in power. Apparently, all the enemies who have come against Jerusalem are before us here. From the Assyrians, who only laid siege but did not enter the city, to the last enemy from the north, who will threaten a city but will not enter, and the interval between these two has seen the city captured more than any other. This is the burden of Jerusalem. What we have in view in verse 10 and 11 is being uh, most of the archaeological work that I observed last November when we were in Jerusalem is primarily um, the city of David. And every time we go, uh, there's more added to it. Uh, they've uncovered a lot of, uh, um, of what we feel where the gates of the city were. But we had we broke up into two groups because we have a reference that when um, Sennacherib came down and laid siege with 185,000 people, it talks about them coming but not entering. But yet preparations were being made by Hezekiah. And here it is being prophesied about. And um, there were some of some of us actually walked through Hezekiah's tunnel. And uh, then you get down, we went down to the Pool of Siloam, and that's just been recently discovered within the last 10, 15 years. I was really excited when I heard they found the Pool of Siloam. And uh, we had a Bible study down there. But this was all done, as we read here, you made a reservoir between the two walls, and uh, you gathered the waters of the lower pools. We call it Hezekiah's Tunnel. And in actuality, it was an exercise in futility. It never had to be done. Um, Isaiah is going to come to him eventually and say, don't worry about a thing. The 185,000 are laying siege to the city right now. Not one shot's going to be fired. And uh, so I don't want you to worry about a thing. And what happened that night, 
is the Lord said one angel and 185,000 men were taken out by one angel in one night. Sennacherib hightails it back to his home, and he's killed by his two sons, just like that. And here we have, of the all the judgments, and it could also include the further one with um, um, Babylon. Let's pick it up, verses 12 through 21. And here is a good play again on stereotypes, maybe between the Antichrist and Lord Jesus Christ, when we get to the name of Sheba and Eliakim, a good guy and a bad guy. And they're, they're of the treasury. So let's pick it up in verse 12. And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness, for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, uh, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, go proceed to this steward. Now he's telling, giving him instructions. I want you to go to Shebna, who was over the house and say, he would have been over actually the treasury, what have you here and whom have you there? That you have hewn a sepulcher here? He who has hewn himself a secular on high, who carved a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you will die. So here we have a picture. The guy's name is Shebna. He's got all these plans, even down to his own sepulcher that he's making. And he's totally consumed with it. And this is all he's always thinking. Basically, it's a picture of people just thinking of the things of this world. In Matthew, Jesus said, store your treasures up in heaven. He said, wherever your heart is at, that's where your treasures are going to be, too. So we look at Sheba, and basically he says, what are you up to? Are you, are you making your own sepulcher? Uh, you're spending your own life? That's what the kings of Egypt did, right? They had all the slave labor to hu- create these huge pyramids. For what purpose? They're tombs. They're tombs. And um, that's what they're known for. So this guy, Shebna here, according to some, believe he's a type of, future type of an antichrist. And uh, here Isaiah says, I want you to go talk to this guy and say, what are you up to? Oh, violent man. Verse 17, so he's a violent man. And will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. Now what we have in view here is probably the Babylonian captivity. And there you will die. And there are your glorious chariots. You might say cars today. (laughs) Uh, Shall be the shame of your master's house, for I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. And, you know, today in our terms, we talk about people climbing the corporate ladder. And it doesn't matter who you step on to get there. That would be the terms that, the parallels that I would use for it today. So what if you get there? 
Basically, that's what the Lord is saying to this guy named Sheba here. Go ahead. Uh, build, do it all for yourself. But this is what's going to happen. I'm going to bounce you like a ball. And I'm going to have guys pick you up. And I'm going to have them take you to a country. And uh, I'll drive you out of your office. And then what is your position? Nothing. You'll have nothing. Now in verse 20, we find his replacement. Then it will be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, the key of the house of David. Now, when we get to these verses here, this is where... We're, we got to think out of the box a little bit. It's not just local. And one of the things as we study the Old Testament is that that time when it moves quickly. All right, we're talking about Babylon, right, 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 right? Not Now we're not because we just switched gears into the key of the house of David. I will lay on his shoulders so he shall open and no one will shut. What, what, what does that ring a bell of? For those of you who know the book of Revelation, and the seven letters to the seven churches. What did he say to Philadelphia? Because I found you've, you've not denied my name and you've been faithful to my word, even though you're little in strength. I'll open up a door for you, and no man can shut it, almost word for word. So all of a sudden, you're thinking Jesus in your mind when you're thinking of these words. And the keys to the house of David, and he will shut and no one shall open. And so... Um, I will fasten him as a secu- in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. And um, it's going to s- remain. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring, and the issue of vessels of small quantities from the, the cups to the pit- pitchers. But this is where I think... Um, Eliakim here was sort of the statesman who succeeded Shebna. Eliakim was an unselfish man. He and Sheba are in contrast here. Isaiah has brought together these men who are more than just paradoxes. They are opposites. And Sheba very possibly could be a picture of the Antichrist, and Eliakim a picture of Christ. And um, that is seen when we get to verse 25 because we're not talking now about what happened during Babylon's time. It says, in that day, verse 25, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on him will be cast off, for the Lord has spoken. The Antichrist, when he arrives on on the scene, his goal is to have things set up his way but that will be um, removed and when it's removed um, verses 22 through 24 these verses remind us of the words of the Lord especially to Philadelphia again I'll quote it these things says he that is holy that is true he that has the key of David he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens that's Revelation 3 verse 7 And it's wonderful when you think about it that um, the Lord has actually gone before you and taken it personal 
um, when we teach the seven letters to the seven churches, they were passed around. It wasn't just to the Church of Philadelphia. These letters circulated. All these seven churches were in what we would call today Turkey, all within 80 miles of each other. We're 80 miles away from Milwaukee. So we'll go ahead and draw, draw a circle. And so now you have all these churches receiving um, this letter. What's your point, Dwight? Well, point is simple. That as we look out into Christianity today at large, uh, we see the Laodicean church. I see that those guys out there. I see dead Protestantism out there. I see the persecuted church that's being killed on a daily basis on the other side of the ocean. That's Sardis. I see the Church of Philadelphia. A little and strict, but they will not compromise. And so what is the Lord going to do? I'm going to open a door for you guys. And um, you haven't denied me, and so I'm going to open up a door. And the people that are, are looking for the light, they'll find you. And I'll, I'll, I'll direct you there. Again, I look forward to the time when it says in the future when time can't be marked, he's going to be getting into the Lord himself, explaining the depths of these scriptures and, and bringing out things that we can't even imagine or fathom right now. All right, the very last chapter, 23, concludes a major section of the book of Isaiah. This one is the 11th and last burden against the nations. It started in 13 and 14 with, I believe it was Babylon. But now this last one, these last 18 verses here, deal with Tyre, the major monetary port in the world during its time. It was the mega center of wealth. The Phoenicians were the... Um, sailors of the sea that had control of great, great wealth. And here it's going to describe in such detail, this, this one of all the Old Testament prophecies that describe how a city is going to fall. It's so accurate here, you stand in amazement of uh, only the Holy Spirit divinely speaking through these guys. This is one of my my favorite prophecies because it happens over a 70-year period of time and it's, everything is so, so precise and called out. Let's, let's dive into it. So in this chapter, uh, we see a judgment and these um, judgments were leveled against the nations around Israel. Each one of these great nations represents... Um, how God dealt with these different countries. The burden of Tyre and Sidon were two great cities of the Phoenicians. Sidon was really the mother city, and she was soon surpassed by her proud and rich daughter, Tyre. So let's dive in, verse 1, the burden against Tyre. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house nor harbor, for the land of Cyprus is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom those who cross the sea have filled, and on great waters the grain of Sihor, that would be the Nile, 
The Nile's going to go into big time mourning because their, their main source of business has just been wiped out, totally wiped out. So it puts Egypt and those by the Nile, the harvest of the river is her revenue, and she is a marketplace for the nations. But no, now the go-between tire is taken out. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The strength of the sea is saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. And when the report comes to Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. They have, they have no way to do any business. Um, it would be like uh, in today's world for those that have invested and have all their um, assets in 401ks or in the stock market. The, the big one happens. It crashes. They close it down, and they don't open back up. That's what basically would be a modern-day example of what happened to the commercialism um, of that day. What it reminds me of is what's future tense in Revelation chapter 18, which becomes uh, the commercial um, the commercial center of the world. The monetary wealth of the world is Babylon that's going to fall. And I'd like to go there, but that's a Bible or Bible study just by itself. But here we have Egypt in agony over the report. They hear the news. Now what are we going to do? I have nothing. Wiped out. Zilch. Don't have anything. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city? Um, whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her far off to sojourn, uh, who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth. The Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory and to bring into contempt all the uh, honor of the earth. So in these verses here, we have these prophecies against Tyre. And um, let's see how much I want to get into this. Verse 10 through. Um, at this point, I need to jump over to... Let's go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 26. Again, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah are all going to touch on different aspects of it. I guess what I'd liken that to is when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call them the four Gospels. And you, you really don't have a complete picture of the Lord's life and ministry unless you have all four of them together. Pretty much the same when we're reading Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. All of them will add details that might be left out in Isaiah. If we go to Ezekiel chapter 26 and look at verses 1 through 9, we have the judgment of, um, of Babylon against Tyre. All right, the word of the Lord, chapter 26, verse 1. It came to pass in the 11th year, on the first day of the month, 
that the word of the Lord came to me. Now this would be Ezekiel. Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, ah, she's broken, who was the gateway of the peoples, and now she's turned over to me. I shall be filled, and she is laid waste. In other words, they're gloating at the demise of Jerusalem. More money for us. Less competition. Tyre would be in that area by Lebanon, and David actually had an uh, an agreement with them at one time. Um, But now they're sort of gloating, and and the Lord sees the gloating. Verse 3, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause, and this is important, many nations, not just one nation, I have it underlined, many nations to come up against you as the sea causes the waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord God, it shall come become plunder for the nations, again, plural, and her daughter villages, which are in the fields, will be slain by the sword, and then they will know that I am the Lord. I know I've said this a hundred times, but this phrase, then they will know I am the Lord, is repeated 54 times in the book of Ezekiel, and where it has its major, then they will know I am the Lord, of course, is Ezekiel 38, when he defeats those nations that come against Israel then Israel will know that he is the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen, and all his armies and many people. Well, all of a sudden we know one of the nations is is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. He will slay with the sword your daughters, villages in the field, and he will heap up a siege mount against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Let's just leave that there and go back to Isaiah and pick up 10 through 17 here. The judgment in verse 10, overthrow through your land like the river, O daughters of Tarshish. There's no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. And the Lord has given a commandment against Cana to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will rejoice no more, O you oppressed virgin daughters of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. They also will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, and be the Babylonians, the people which was not Assyria, founded it from wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers. This is what Ezekiel was talking about. They raised up its, its palaces and brought it to ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Now it will come to pass in that day that Tyre will be for, forgotten for 70 years. So now we're getting specific. You can make general prophecies, but now you throw out a number, and either it's going to happen in 70 years or it's not. So we have Tyre in captivity, 70 years, just like 
Israel was in captivity, Jeremiah said, you're going to be there for 70 years. Well, the same thing was said to Tyre. Did it happen or not? Having hindsight, the prophet's spot on. It'll come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years according to the days of one king. And at the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of a harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, your forgotten harlot. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that, that you may remember. And it shall be at the end of the 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return to her pain. But when she comes back, she continues in her sin, commits fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. So we find with the destruction of Tyre, God said that Tyre would be destroyed by Babylon and would be taken into captivity for 70 years, just as Judah went into captivity for 70 years. The people of Tyre returned to the land, as did Israel, after the captivity. They rebuilt their city on an island in the Mediterranean Sea, about half a mile from the old city. Babylon came in, took its battering rams, destroyed a lot of the city. Now when they return, they move it to an island. And I, had, I did a study on this maybe a couple of months ago, and I actually showed you pictures on screen, I don't have any for tonight, that you don't see an island there. Uh, They did it as a protective measure to get off the coast, and because they were so strong as a a military and a Navy sense that they couldn't be beat. Now what's going to happen is nations, remember plural? Now once they're back and they have their city built on the island, who shows up but Alexander the Great? And this is where would be the other nation. That besides Babylon, that came. About a half a mile from the, the old city, God said that the ruins of, of the old city would be scraped like a rock. We just read that in Ezekiel 26. Now later, Alexander the Great shows up. He scraped the ancient site of Tyre to make a causeway. He took all the building material, and what he did is he threw it in the ocean to fill in when he ran out of building material He literally had his men scrape it flat and then take all of that and use it to fill in. And if you Google tire today, you'll see that it's a a piece of land that goes like this, goes all a bit, and it comes back in because it used to be an island. Alexander the Great, Isaiah prophesied before it would happen, says here that it it would be scraped in Ezekiel. And Alexander the Great scraped the ancient site of Tyre to make a causeway to the island city. He was wise enough not to attempt battle at sea because the Phoenicians were ex- experts with ships. So he built a causeway from the old city on the mainland. And that is how nations, plural, Tyre, overnight, bam, the, the, the trading mechanism of its day, equivalent to our Wall Street today where we do all our buying and trading, it's gone overnight. And what's the result? The result is the people that depend on trade, primarily in this chapter it was Egypt. We go back and we read that um, they're in great mourning. They, They have nothing. It's all been simply wiped out. And, um, 
What an encouraging Bible study that was this evening, full of joy and happy, clappy thoughts, and going to leave you with fuzzy, warm feelings as you go home tonight. What was the Bible study about? Judgment, 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 judgment. Chapter 21, judgment. Chapter 22, judgment. Chapter 23, judgment. Well, here's the thing, gang. Why, why it's important for us to read the Bible, the whole Bible. Because what it sets the stage for is something that nobody likes to talk about. But you can't stick your head in the sand and pretend it's not happening. This world is going down. And what we have on Sunday is chapter 24, a whole new section. Everything we read tonight is past tense. And my question for you is this. Was the prophet spot on or not? Did these events not happen exactly as the prophet said they would? Is there one of them that didn't come to pass? And what it does when we study the Bible this way, and we have to deal with the subject, chapter 24 for Sunday, the whole chapter is simply the tribulation, period. And it's right around the corner. And the reason we should take it to heart and take it seriously is because when you look backwards and look at history, and we see what God's word had to say before it happened, 200 years in advance, that it nails it. It's almost as if it's already happened as far as the Lord is concerned. And you know what? It has already happened as far as the Lord is concerned. There is no time in eternity. It's like the Lord looking down from heaven at a parade. Let's say the Rose Bowl parade. He sees the first float, and he sees the last marching band all at the same time. We're sitting in the bleachers. We just see bits and pieces of it as we go through history. The Lord sees the whole thing from the beginning to the end. Uh, he's spoken it, and who's going to annul it and who's going to undo it? Amen? So even though this is not a happy, clappy Bible study, it's a real one. And what you heard was the truth tonight. I'm not going to try to soften this up one bit. It is meant to prepare us for what Jesus said, pray that you're counted worthy to escape the things that are coming. And when you see what has happened in the past and you see what he said is coming in the future, we should take, like I said, we're to be sober-minded and take that seriously. Be a light in what we can right now. I'd put my eggs not in Wall Street. I'd put them in other places investing in things that are going to remain. Amen? How am I doing for time? I can't be right on time, but I am. So miracles still happen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you. Even when we have to read the hard stuff, Lord, the first thing we learn about the judgments tonight is your reaction through the prophet Isaiah and that you take absolutely no pleasure in the judgment of the nations, no more than you take pleasure in the judgments of those even when you extend your grace and your mercy, Lord, out to us, we still have a free will. We can still blow you off and, and run and do our own thing. Or we can submit ourselves to you, be a part of the family that is crying out, like it says in Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come. And in the meantime, Lord, we, we want to be in, in a world where we see the reality of what's happening. We see the very people that you talked about being at war with each other. We just thank you that you've laid it all out before us ahead of time. So, Lord, we do pray that you would give us perseverance, endurance. Just help us have a reality check. We thank you, Lord, tonight just for the Wednesday night study. And I pray your people would be blessed as we go out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.